You are listening to EMS 2020, a podcast hosted by Spencer Oliver and myself, Chris Finkston. We are paramedics with quite a bit of experience, ranging from flight paramedicine to ground transportation to even some volunteer work as well. EMS 2020 reviews scenarios based on actual out-of-hospital medical scenes. Portions of the scenarios are altered to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. Hey, welcome to EMS 2020. Chris, question for you. Yeah, go ahead, man. Let's say you're listening to a radio report in the ambulance. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and you hear, you overhear, while you're waiting your turn to give report, you hear a uh, crew come in, code three, and they say, we have uh, the patient intubated, but their end title is zero. Thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, my patience for this crew is directly related to how quickly I need to give my report. Because I, I will cut them off if I am five minutes out with an air facility transfer. I don't care. I got to get this done. Because I'll tell you, I've been to Just, enough ERs where you could be five minutes away and a code three comes in and you get there and they're like, you didn't give report. I'm like, yeah, but things. Yeah, you should be important. Uh, no, I would think it's not. I would think the patient's entirely not intubated with an end title of yeah, zero. Would, <laughs> yeah. Where are we? Rhode Island? <laughs> I would go, no, you have a really short and really wide uh, oral gastric tube. That is what you have. You don't have <laughs> you don't have an innovation. Nice. Yeah. yeah, no, that would uh, that would be my thought exactly, too. Uh, and probably everybody's thought. But. Stand by one. Oh, shit. Let me give you let me give you the call. OK, so I'm in a fight. A fire-based EMS medic, excuse me, a fire-based EMS medic unit, so basically an ambulance, is dispatched to an ambulance driven by firefighters. Okay. Do they I, transport or are they just yeah. like? They do transport. They do transport. Okay. And they probably get paid a lot more money to do it. Not fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> All right. So uh, dispatched to an SUV pulled over to the highway for a 60-year-old female reporting chest pain. Okay. Uh, it's the middle of the day. Uh, and I should note that it's been a pretty busy day. And hey, so uh, how, uh, old, how old did you say again? Uh, 60s, 60 okay. year old female. I thought you said yep. 16 at first. I'm like, oh, wow. That, that would change it up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's the middle of the day. It's a busy day. So there aren't any other units available uh, to come assist them. So it's basically just the ambulance, which has a paramedic and an EMT going uh, on this call suboptimal but all right sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do yeah well the crew arrive and they find a 60s uh female sitting in the passenger seat of an suv excuse me suv reporting sudden onset chest pain uh she's pale appears significantly distressed and uh, is doing that thing where they're clutching their chest no oh boy levine sign i have no idea i call it american, i'm pretty sure it is I believe it's pretty sure it's called american heart association sign because that's the picture <laughs> they have like Next to the chest pain algorithm all the time, some guy drawn clutching his chest. Uh, true. The medic reported uh, that the patient, uh, despite, like, if they hadn't looked as distressed as they were, they would have actually looked pretty healthy, you know, for their age. So if not for looking like they're on the brink of death, they, look, they looked all right. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that you know, there's... There's people who, uh, you know, like they look like they were born in the 1920s and you're like, oh, yeah, how was the war? And they're <laughs> like, D I'm, you know, 32. Yeah, that's right She's up like, there. Wow. with Yeah. And that's right up there with like, are you pregnant? How far along are you? And like, no, I'm not. It's kind of the same category. Oh, God. 
All right. So mm. sorry about that. So you got a 60 year old female <laughs> looks like shit, but doesn't look like shit. Uh, looks like shit, but doesn't look like she's supposed to look like shit uh, in a car. You've got a medic and an EMT. Sorry. Go ahead. No, perfect. Uh, so her husband, the driver, says that they were on the way to a follow up doctor's appointment for her wife, his wife's leg. Uh, the medic notes that the patient's right leg is in a heavy-duty leg immobilizer, and in the back seat of the SUV, uh, crutches are present. Mm. Um, so the medic places the patient on the monitor and notes that she is in a narrow, complex tachycardia at about 130 beats per minute, which matches her strong radial pulse. Okay. Uh, her respiratory rate, by the way, is in the like 30s. It, you know, it's one of those where it's like it was just really fast. She's working really hard to breathe. She is distressed. Um, yep. Uh, the SPO2 does not read on the patient, and because the SPO2 isn't reading and the respiratory distress, with some noted cyanosis around her lips, the crew get out a non-rebreather mask and uh, start to place, pl- uh, place it on the patient. Uh, fun fact, at this point, a brush rig uh, arrives, driven by a single paramedic uh, who's with their service, bringing nice. the total of seen paramedics now to two and the one EMT. All right. Unfortunately, uh, this paramedic is the harbinger of death because as soon as he arrives and the non-rebreather is placed on the patient, the medic in the vehicle notes that the patient's eyes have become unfocused and she is no longer responding. It's not good. Also, she no longer has a pulse. That's that's worse. (laughs) So the team quickly pull her out of the SUV and place her on their stretcher. And the EMT starts CPR while the other medic uh, retrieves their automated CPR device. So uh, essentially, they now have four paramedics. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, you know, I'm going to push back real quick and just go like, eh, I feel like they have two basics. That they, oh, never mind. Good point. I can't count. Job, job protection. Job protection, buddy. That's fair. <laughs> Don't. Don't let them automate our jobs away. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, if they come up with a CPR device that also starts IVs, we're fucked. <laughs> oh, basically. Yeah. Uh, so pads are placed and the patient's found to be in a narrow tacky complex, uh, narrow complex tacky PEA. Order <laughs> matters there. Uh, rather than stay on scene and work the code, the PA the PIC elects to transport immediately towards the closest appropriate hospital, which is about 30 minutes away. So they just loaded and go loaded and goad. Yep. They, so they just loaded up and okay, that's, yep. That's interesting. Maybe we'll touch base on that one later because that's kind of what a lot of municipalities are moving away from. Yeah. Kind of load and go. So anyway, but hey, uh, limited resources, uh, who knows? Something to think about. Yeah, for sure. So the configuration for transport is the PIC medic, the brush rig medic, and the EMT driver. Uh, And so they start transporting right away. They get an 18-gauge IV placed, and they go ahead and push uh, one milligram of 1 to 10,000 epi. Additionally, a humeral head IO is placed. Good. So the PIC elects to intubate the patient at this point. Um, So he goes and, you know, he actually meticulously set it up, positioned the patient appropriately, uh, you know, got his equipment ready, toggled the end title on the monitor before intubating. Uh, they have a video laryngoscope. And so he used that device. And by all accounts, the intubation appears to go flawlessly. Okay. Uh, he uses the VL, sees the cords, 
and using uh, bougie with the over-the-top method, which is for those not uh, in the know, uh, essentially uh, you look with your laryngoscope, you pass the bougie through the uh, trachea, and then what you do is you hold it there while you slide the tube over and it over the bougie and it goes right where it needs to go. It's a beautiful thing. Cool. Uh, so the 7.5 tube is easily passed through the cords. Uh, the laryngoscope is removed. The tube is secured by the other medic and they connect the end title and they start delivering breaths via the BVM. Um, and so both medics look over to the monitor expecting there to be that uh, yellow wave indicating that they are there. And all they see are little blips and no numeric value. And then a numeric comes back as zero. Ugh. So when you say little blips, so, are you saying like little saw teeth patterns or just like like static almost? Or not static, but like interference? Uh, that was sort of the question was are the breaths we're delivering, are those the blips that we're seeing? Because there is that little bit of delay in the end title. And so he's like, I, am I picking up road noise? Because they're not breaths. You know, like the, it's not, it's just very it's not, little blips. Are on the blips the like in like, time with anything they're doing? They think so. But the medic said it also could just be that the patient's bouncing up and down on the road and having CPR done. Fair. So, uh, yeah, you know, he's not very he's not very sure what he's seeing, but it's not what he believes he should be seeing. Yeah, it's not what either of them think they should be seeing. Well, if it's an so entitled of zero, point, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. And you're saying that he watched it pass through the cords. He was using a VL. Yeah, cool. yeah. So at this point, uh, the medic assumes that wow, I must not have passed the tube, and deflates and pulls the tube out. Uh, and they go back to uh, delivering BVM breaths with B, uh, BLS adjunct. And, of course, there is still a code to run, so they are still yeah. giving the epi, you know, uh, every five minutes or so and, you know, doing the rhythm checks and whatnot. Um, so <laughs> here's the problem. So they've attempted to intubate, right, and – that didn't go well. And so there's sort of a conundrum. Do we reattempt to innovate or do we just go with like, you know, a king or an eye gel or whatever, um, you know, superglottic airway that they might carry on their unit. And so uh, the part, the PIC's partner, the rig, brush rig medic briefly brings up that, hey, maybe a superglottic airway would be better. But the PIC feels pretty confident that they should succeed in the intubation, given that he easily saw the cords last time. So they decide to make another attempt, though this time they've changed it up. They've gone with a tube size smaller, 7.0, and do the same things. Again, the tube appears to go through the cords. It's inflated and secured. End tidal CO2 is placed back on and still blips blips in a zero mm. so Did they swap this it time out? they swap out so the end title they did swap out the end title uh coming up here they did but before they played with the end title uh what he did was the medic who intubated listened to the lungs around the you know lucas auto pulse whatever the <clears throat> whatever the maker is yeah sure <laughs> coffee the coffee mate CPR device. <laughs> the Keurig. <laughs> um, and uh, which is actually kind of a cool trick. I, I was like, I, I, you know, asked him like, so hold on, you, 
you were able to listen through the Lucas device and he's like, it's a timing thing. You kind of got to have the person time the breaths around it. But if you have a stethoscope, that isn't the stock shitty one that usually occupies the back of an ambulance. Right. That's not universal. Some people, some people, some places put nice, nice stethoscopes back there. But, Mm -hmm. uh, those were not the places that I started working. (laughs) So, um, but uh, he said, nice stethoscope and timing pays off and you can actually hear around the uh, the device, around the CPR. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so he heard lung sounds present. There wasn't any distension in the stomach. There wasn't any, you know, like, uh, th- yeah, there was misting in the tube. There were all these other things that seemed to kind of indicate they were in, but the end title still read zero. Still zero. So, so wow. they wonder if it's a, you know, uh, so they replace the end title line and then they wonder if it's, you know, maybe the tube balloon, you know, popped or something, and, you know, so they put the bougie back in and note the, that it stops, feel the rings of the trachea, note that it stops in the carina, which, you know, uh, for those not familiar with the bougie, um, Actually, you're a better explainer of the bougie. Yeah. So the bougie, I mean, if you're familiar with intubation at all, you're familiar with stylets. The way to think of a bougie is it's essentially a really long stylet. And just imagine it that it is straight. It's a bit thicker than a stylet. Um, and then at the very end of it, it's got almost like, it's almost shaped like a hockey stick. There's a little kink in the end that kind of goes at what I would say kind of a shallow angle. It's not like a 90 degree. It's not quite 45. I'd say it's more like a 30 degree angle. I'm sure that measurement's somewhere on the internet and there'll be someone that'll correct me. Like, actually, it's a 27.2 degree angle. But (laughs) either way, there's a little angle there. Uh, and it's not near as rigid as a stylet would be and it doesn't like hold its form or anything like that the thing's just kind of this floppy plastic uh the way you use it is when you've uh achieved laryngoscopy whether direct or using a video uh, laryngoscope uh, you can insert the bougie in there the nice thing about the bougie is it's so much smaller than an et tube it really easily fits into an airway and that little hockey stick kink at the end what that's designed to do is one is designed to assist it uh, because what you'll do is you'll position that to where it is facing anteriorly and so it's designed to assist it uh, into the trachea instead of going underneath their you know instead of going posterior to the trachea and winding up in the esophagus it'll help it get guided anteriorly and then the second function of that is it will actually bounce along the cartilage rings in the trachea and it will have a very distinct uh vibration when you feel it and you'll and you'll know you're in uh and also if someone is uh doing external laryngeal manipulation or what you know used to call cricoid pressure um but if someone else has got their hands on the larynx as you're pushing it through they will feel it too it's very very noticeable uh a couple nice things about it is uh like this paramedic did is they pushed uh, gambuji down until it bumped into the carina that's pretty cool if you're not in the trachea and you're pushing that gambuji down it'll just keep going. And so, because it's the esophagus, <laughs> I mean, it, it might leave the body eventually, depending on how long yeah. the bougie is. That, um, that, but it's a bad day if it comes out their ass. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. Can you imagine carrying them into the ER like that? Just one person. <laughs> just One just, person has a hand on one end, the other person has a hand on the other end. 
right. Found this on the side of the road. (laughs) Oh, shit. Yeah, literally in this call, too. Oh, God. Um, But yeah, so that's that's basically what the bougie That's what the goddamn That's what (laughs) the bougie is. is, uh, It just helps you you get in there. And it's immensely useful. Like, just use them. They're amazing. It makes your innovation a lot easier. A lot of uh, different places are pretty much that's their standard practice now. We don't even bother with normal stylets. There's no point. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. Well, here's uh, another cool thing that they were able to do. Uh, if you ever need to swap out an ET tube in the field mm-hmm. uh, because of, you know, like a balloon or, you know, the, I don't know, the patient chewed off a portion of it, you can Happens. actually place the... It, it, it does happen. Sedation is... Uh, it's an art. You know, sedate. <laughs> yeah. Always sedate your patient. Um, the, the answer is always more sedation. Uh, so they, what you can do is you can put like this crew did the bougie back down, uh, the ET tube and, uh, and then actually just sort of feed the ET tube over, you know, over the top, pull it out and swap the new one back on and push the new one, which is what they did with a 7.5 tube. And they used the VL to make sure that everything was copacetic. Uh, so again, now they've replaced all their all their stuff right mm-hmm. uh they connect the end title and despite all of this uh Fuck. they still have a rating of zero <laughs> damn it with just those little blips now again they've reconfirmed lung sounds you know they looked again they have misting in the tube they don't have any distension of the stomach yeah you know uh no sounds in the stomach they have you know breast sounds equal in all fields so i by all accounts, it's, it's in. in. It's in. I you would almost ha- you would have to leave that airway in. Anyway, keep going. So, uh, at this point, they're like, "All right, it has to be in." And you know, despite the end title reading, and they realize that they still have to give report. So, a radio report is given, including the report that they have an end title. Uh, excuse me, an end title of zero with their endotracheal tube. And the hospital responds that the team should probably check the placement and consider just using BLS airway management. Which is but fair. the crew held fast, no changes were made to the airway, and they continued ACLS protocol and arrived to the ED. Now, fun fact here, uh, the amount of sweat that this crew collectively deposited on the floor of the ambulance uh, would have filled a small kiddie pool. <laughs> Nay, a larger kiddie pool because uh, th- uh, this is the thing like code sweat like every, a code is always a sweaty place because somebody you know like I, I get sweaty watching people do cpr and then you know like <laughs> i you know just because like oh man and then i i get sweaty thinking about like the chart you know like i'm like oh there's going to be so many interventions and you know like it's just a very it's a very big amount. Like there's a lot of work that goes into it. So it makes sense. And you know, like a life is on the line. Right. Well, most there's of the time. Yeah, sure. Right. I, mean, I guess that, you know, <laughs> of all so those things they consider, things, that's the last one on the list. But if you add in something that, you know, like, in, you know, like thou shalt not have a ET tube without an end title like oh, that, yeah. uh, that would ju- that would put me into a whole new level of like sweating. Sweat. <laughs> They'd be like, "Did you guys go through a drive like a like a car wash drive through car wash? Like, why are you so wet?" <laughs> oh god! 
Is it raining outside? Yep. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And some people, I did have a partner once where he would just, or actually was a part, he worked with one of the local agencies that this guy, just every scene, the sweat was just insane. <laughs> and it was getting to the point where like, there was one call where he had to intubate and he's sweating and it's dripping off of him just onto the patient's face. Oh uh, God, gross. Yeah. It, oh, it, anyway, I mean, the patient didn't care. They were... They were coded. But, <laughs> they were intended. Yeah, they were intended. But anyway. But still. Still. Uh, yeah. So the crew arrives at the ED and uh, Chris, guess what happens? Oh, I, I, I have no doubt they pulled the tube. So that would be my fear. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Because uh, I'd go like, hey, guys, I double, triple checked. And the doctor, you know, like my fear would I'd walk in and the doctor would just go like, well, you have an untitled zero. It's obviously not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, that didn't happen here. Uh, of course, initially, everyone doubts the tube placement. Uh, the medic reports getting, uh, quote, the look, quote, from everyone, including the doctor. But the doctor went in, checked w- with the glide scope and notes that the ET uh, uh, appears well positioned. Wow. Uh, they even they did order a chest X-ray and ultimately confirmed the placement was good. Yeah. Unfortunately, the patient remained in arrest and is ultimately declared dead. Oh, that's that sucks. That's always. A but bit this hard. is a scary call, man. Yeah, it is. It is a scary call. So let's. Um, there's a lot to talk about uh, in in that call. Let's just kind of start with. Um, why don't we just start with what we think happened? Yeah. Like what was the cause of this? So let's look back up at the top here. So a call came in for chest pain. We have a sixties female Mm -hmm. sitting in a vehicle with sudden onset chest pain. She's immediately pale. um, And I'll tell you, I think, I think I know what happened based on some clues you dropped, but, um, pale cyanotic. I likewise, I, I think we're all kind of on, probably going on the same page, you know, like the two big, the two big ones would be like, she had some kind of heart attack, uh, sure. or she had like a pulmonary embolism. And I think I'm leaning towards pulmonary embolism. And my, my big, my big thing for the pulmonary embolism is, to me, like the the fact that she had a recent leg something, she's a leg brace going on and she has crutches in the back. That's brought up for a reason in the story. And it's one of those things where I mean, it could just be an observation. But anytime you have uh, any extremity or any recent surgery, you have the ability to form clots, period, the end. And those clots yeah. have the ability to break away and wind up somewhere they shouldn't, uh, like the lungs. So I think this person probably had a massive PE is what was go- is what would happen because that's the only thing I can think of that would uh, also block uh, that could also cause a, a, that big of a disruption in the gas exchange to not read on an end title because you did say because the, the ER they also got an end title of zero, correct? The ER did get an untitled of zero. Right. Yep. So at this point, because the only other thing left, if we were troubleshooting equipment, because they already swapped out the the actual capnography piece. They already did that. Because that was kind of one of my initial things. Like, all right, your cap, your capnography thing's broken. Equipment breaks, grab a new one. So my next thing would be like, yep. swap out the monitor. Well, I don't know about you, but my ambulance has one monitor. We don't load two monitors in. And I highly doubt the guy who brought the brush rigs would be like, you know what? Just in case, let me grab an auxiliary. <laughs> like, no one's doing that. 
No, usually if there's two yeah. monitors in the ambulance, it's because someone grabbed theirs. You know, it's, I, I just don't want to unplug it again. You know, like but in this case, there was no need to do that. Like I'm talking like there's a fire agency in a private ambulance. Sometimes you'll wind up with two monitors in an ambulance because the fire agency started. And instead of unplugging their monitor and plugging into a new monitor, they just take theirs along. You know, like that For will sure. happen. You have two monitors in Amazon. But in this case, you know, they didn't have that. And so um, the next thing would be, all right, switch out the monitor. Well, that essentially happens in the ER. Same reading. So now, you know, this patient's legitimately putting out a reading of zero. You've got a confirmed tube. So my, my guess is this would have to be uh, just a massive pulmonary embolism. Yeah, at like a saddle pulmonary embolism, you know, just like some like the Kentucky Derby of right. uh, pulmonary embolisms, you know, just <laughs> it's, is that like a reference uh, to saddles? Is that what that is? That's yes. That's an <laughs> awesome reference to saddles. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I love it, though. Uh, so I don't know where this shit comes from in my head, man. I just say it. <laughs> oh, God. Honey Badger and uh, what's the other one? The other nickname? Oh, Prairie Dog. Prairie Dog. Yeah. If you want to know yep. about Honey Badger and Prairie Dog, uh, go back and listen to uh, the Shocking Mistakes episode. We decided to give people nicknames because it was important to keep the facts straight. And it was a little bit funny. Um, and email us, by the way. Let us know. Uh, fan of nicknames, not a fan of nip- nicknames. Uh, so, yeah. So, that's EMS2020podcast at gmail.com. So, the second thing that... Um, we should bring it. Oh, do you have the answer? Do you know, was it a pulmonary embolism? So I don't have the autopsy information, but that is what the, uh, you know, the, the physicians at the emergency department basically ruled in. They mm-hmm. were like, yeah, but I mean, given, I mean, cause even the, her, like, you know, her going into cardiac arrest sort of makes sense for that narrow complex tachycardia at one thirty. you know, right. she goes into the uh, arrest because not only is she not getting, um, you know, uh, the gas exchange at the lungs, but, you know, like she's also blocked, you know, her heart is being blocked from getting blood to the left ventricle to pump out to the body. So, you know, right. it's all bad. Her blood pressure tanks and no gas exchange, which makes sense that she'd uh, start there and go into uh, a systole, which she did sometime during this episode. Did they ever get a, a, a SAT reading at all, SAO2? They never did. Yeah. and I Which also makes sense. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't expect it. Um, okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that decision then. So we've talked about that we think this is a PE. One of the big clues is a surgery. The other big clue is the, is the end title of zero, which I will say yeah. is actually even rare for, for, for a PE. I, I personally, like I've been, I've run PE codes uh, or I've, I've had uh, people innovated on PEs and to get a reading of zero is still super rare. I mean, this, this had to be just a giant, embolism but it really um, did yeah yeah but let's talk a little bit about the decision making going up and i want to really give uh, a good chunk of kudos to the crew on their decision making on this um so one of the things that um i'll say is a lot of times on on the show we do kind of focus on the things that crews do negatively uh that that probably could learn or be changed from but this is kind of one of those things where i think we should might be able to kind of tear a page from the book and kind of follow so here's the thing. I mean, capnography is the standard for checking your tube. And Spence, like Spence, why is that? Why? Well, here's the reason it's the gold standard. It's basically, it's irrefutable evidence that you had your tube in the right place 
at least at some point during your transport, you know, yeah. whether you, I mean, ideally you would have, if you have a patient, you know, intubated and sedated, then you need to have them on, you know, continuous monitor, you know, end tidal CO2 monitoring so that you can always kind of like assure that the ventilations are happening. Um, Cause there's a pretty big delay in like SPO2 readings and whether or not somebody's reading, you know, or breathing. So, um, the other problem is, is that the other evidence that we have is really just sort of subjective. I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's just your word. You saw the tube pass through the cords when you were looking, you heard lung sounds or somebody heard lung sounds, you know, misting seen in tube. That's a little more objective, but I mean, it, you know, like, well, at one point there was misting in the tube, you know, again, it's, it's subjective. It's not something you can like, I mean, I guess you could take a picture of it with a cell phone and be like, see, I had it. But then <laughs> I suppose. even then on its own, like misting happens if you put a tube in the, you know, in the esophagus, like it can still mist. Especially if you've um, been bagging a patient. Yeah, you if you're blowing feel, a bunch yeah. of <laughs> yeah. air into a humid tube, like right. yeah, there's, you're going to get a little mist. Yeah. Um, Chest rise with ventilation. Uh, again, that's also sort of subjective. Uh, you know, there's no hard data that you can print out. And also it can be misleading that there, there, you know, like if I have seen what I thought was chest rise and it's the two, you know, like it, it's epigastric rise. You know what I mean? Do you remember you, know, could, uh, you and I ran a call years ago? And uh, I'm not trying to bring this up to say, like, remember that time I told you so? But we had an innovative patient oh, we yeah. were bagging. Yeah. Tell that story. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great story. Yeah. So. Uh, it's I, a great story because uh, I look pretty cool. You do look pretty awesome in this. Uh, so we had uh, actually one of the paramedic. He intubated the patient. Um, and then he asked us to confirm, uh, you know, the placement. Uh, we plugged it into end title, the end title read zero. Uh, he was like, well, I'm pretty sure I was right. So I listened to lung sounds and I thought I heard lung sounds. Now, granted, they were very weird, like wet sounding lung sounds, but they were in the area that I should, you know, that you would expect to hear sounds in if, you know, and so I was like, I, I hear lung sounds. They sound weird, but I hear them. And then I listened over, you know, where I thought the stomach was and didn't hear anything. And so I went like, yeah, I hear stuff. Um, and then you swooped in because you kind of went like, mm, I don't, I don't believe any of this appropriately. And thank God you did. Cause it was an entitled of zero. <laughs> That's why. Exactly. And so you listened and you said, I, I don't hear lung sounds. What I think I'm hearing is uh, like a resonation of the esophagus, yeah. you know, air being blown down the floppy esophagus tube, just sort of resonating throughout right. the patient's chest. Uh, it was very, it was a very weird sound. Uh, and then you said, and also I hear epigastric sounds, which clued me into the fact that I probably wasn't listening to the right spot. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but so, so that's the thing though, right there is the reason is end tidal and tells a very good indicator that, that you're in because you're just not going to get exhaled CO2 from any other hole in the mouth. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I mean, I, I've heard I've heard anecdotal like little stories about, oh, if someone drinks a Coca-Cola and then collapses and codes, they could have built up CO2 in their stomach. And that could give you a reading. Well, that's going to taper off pretty quick. Um, I would think yeah, so. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if, if it's even true. Yeah, I, I, I can't validate or verify that. But uh, anyway, for sure. Yeah, everything else is pretty much subjective. So that's why end title has become the de facto standard for being in the esophagus or being in the trachea. I mean, I guess it's also the standard for being in the esophagus because you'll know. Um, but or apparently not. So let's talk a little bit, though, about like the other clinical findings and kind of where this is ballsy for this crew. Um, so, go ahead. So here's here's one of the things I'd like to bring up is, you know, like the medics sort of figured they were probably dealing with a pulmonary embolism. Yeah. So there's a the, so that there is a again, a, a pulmonary embolism so large as to block off all, you know, like actual like gas exchange and perfusion at the lungs or like any, you know, like maybe all is not the right word, but a significant amount to make sure, you know, to make the end title basically go like, Nope, nothing happening here. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that that's ex- like, that's super rare, you know? Um, but it's possible, right? Yeah. And so they have that like pretest possibility kind of loaded up uh, as, you know, like, huh, we're not getting this. We're having all these other things, like we're getting all these other positive signs and we have a plausible explanation as to why the equipment wouldn't, would be reading zero. So we've, you know, like they, they did all the other work to prove that they had the tube and the end title was zero. And they had a reason that the end title would be zero, which sort of buffers up the other stuff as well. I think that's I think that's where they I, where I'm I'm impressed. It takes a strong paramedic to trust things, you, you know, to trust to trust a tube enough to leave it in and not just pull it. I mean, honestly, I I could be compelled, you know, like I I wouldn't have batted an eye at you know replacing it with an SGA. Honestly, like I think there are some situations in which intubation is definitely you know the the better way to go but in cardi in a lot of cardiac arrest situations mm-hmm. uh, it, it seems like the data at this point is mostly equal there's some caveats to that like if we were better innovators you know as a whole the data might be different but at the at the, at this point like there's a whole bunch of you know studies that have just come out that sort of suggest like uh, there might actually be better effects, you know, with a superglottic airway since the first pass rate is like between 50 and 60%. Yeah. And I don't remember the, I don't have the exact numbers pulled up from the study, uh, but it's the, you know, so a uh, superglottic airway might've been something worth trying. Um, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference. I think their end title still would have come back zero, but. Um, oh, it definitely would have come back yeah, zero. That, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we put it in an SGA and now it comes back like 30. <laughs> well, I mean, then you just kind of go like, wow, I really suck at putting a tube yeah. in somebody. Now, <laughs> here, here's the one thing that I would say. Could you, I, I think, I don't think this would have happened in a normal code scenario. I think the fact that they only had as few people as they did uh, aided them in being able to keep that tube. Whether or not the tube was necessary, I get it. 
Um, but could you imagine being on a normal Code 99, like where you and I used to work, where you've got two paramedics on an ambulance, you've got two fire apparatus for eight firefighters, you've got 10 people there, and you being the guy and like every paramedic around, it's a paramedic rich system, and you try to justify your zero end title tube to everybody? It's not going to happen. Not no. going to fucking happen. So getting, uh, so I think the fact that they only had three people allowed this to happen, which kind of segues beautifully into my next point is let's talk a little bit about the decision to load and go. Yeah. Cause you were, you're right on the money. Uh, I, you know, I lost patience with the, you know, like everybody like, Oh, we, Oh, this person's, we just found this dead person. Like let's load him and go like that. That used to be a thing, and it 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 would yielded horrible results. Oh, it did! It absolutely did. Because you cannot do good CPR in a moving ambulance. You know, you can't run a code in a in a moving ambulance very well. Yeah. And there's also not a lot of point. So, um, one of the things that, and one of the reasons that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you have a different take on this, or you've heard something uh, different that's probably wrong. Um, but um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, they can't, if someone comes into the ER and, and they're coded, there's very little that the hospital is going to do for them until they get that pulse back. Uh, they're not sending a, a coded person in to remove that clot from their brain. They're not going to send a coded person in to get a stent placed, you know, like they got to be able to get pulses back before they can really move to the next step of correcting what took the pulses away in the first place. Now, that's not true for every intervention, but most of the things that can be done to correct a pulseless apneic patient are things that we can do in the field. And they're things that must be done prior to any other intervention anyway. And here's the thing that paramedics do really, really well. We run really, really good code 99s. Yeah. I will say that, um, and this is not a knock on all ERs uh, at all, and this is not always the case, but some of the worst codes I've seen run have been in places where there's really no excuse to run a poor code, and that's been in emergency rooms. Yeah. And it's just one of those things to where I think part of it is that uh, there's no, you know, when, you, when it comes to EMS, uh, there's a lot of EMS culture that is like, hey, everyone has a voice. You may be wrong. It doesn't mean I have to listen to your voice, but everyone gets to speak up. And I think a lot of agencies, I can't say all agencies, but a lot of agencies are very good at cultivating that kind of environment. Uh, I don't know that, that carries to every single emergency room, but I can tell you the emergency rooms where I've seen poor codes get run, um, it's usually because they're not doing the tenets of a good code, like closed loop communication, speaking up when they see something wrong, those kind of things. Yep. So we're good at running codes. Getting ROSC is pretty essential before we can really fix any other major problem uh, with the patient. So if you can stay on scene and do a proper code correctly, then that's where it should be done. Um, but let's talk about this particular instance. They only had three people, four people, if you include Lucas. Uh, <laughs> or the, they only had. Or, or whatever non-denominational device that they were using. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Unless Lucas wants uh, to sponsor us, because then fuck everything will be a Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'll be drinking from a Lucas cup. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Does Lucas make microphones? Because that's what I have. It's just pounding the drink in your face over and over again. At a hundred times a minute. <laughs> drink it. Drink it. Drink it. Uh, <laughs> uh, safe word. Uh, but anyway, so. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, so this is one of those cases, though, where you're talking about only having, you have limited number of people on scene. If the goal is to run the best code possible for this patient, and here's the other thing, too, is you have limited people on scene, and judging from the resources available in that area, you're not getting any more. Yeah. You're pretty much tapped. I mean, what they have is they have the initial response for the ambulance. And the only other resource they could scrounge was one dude in a brush rig that they are, by the way, leaving on the side of the road as they take off. Nothing says for strap for resources like saying, fuck the vehicle, leave it behind. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, really valid point. It, yeah. And so you're going to wind up. So it's one of those things where at that point, this, it's hard for me to really say either way, but this, I think this is actually more likely a good case of someone saying like, look. I know the standard is to stay in play, but the reality is I need more people and I can't get that here. And to me, this is kind of one of those things, you know, I talk about this often, maybe too often, uh, but this is one of those things where you can do a lot in EMS if you can justify yourself clinically. And so this is one of those times where I think there was a rule that needed to be broken. That was it. Yeah. And there's a good clinical justification behind it. That's how I feel about it. Where are you at on that? I, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, like there's probably no scenario which, uh, you know, a protocol can be written, you know, like or can't be written for every scenario. And this is one of those outliers where it's like, okay, yes, if you, you know, have uh, some kind of automatic CPR device, because it, I mean, if they didn't have the automatic CPR device, then they should have just, then the side of the road is where you stay and do the, you know, cause like CPR is what saves lives. You know, right. uh, the compressions are what saves lives. The rest of it is just sort of niceties. Um, and so like prioritizing compressions over all the rest is, would, you know, like it's absolutely crucial. Uh, but, you know, so they have that part taken care of. They're not getting anyone else, like you said. So yeah, I mean, in this case, then yeah, the the right thing to do is to disregard the usual thing that we do and, you know, follow this rabbit hole down, I think. So one last point I want to make, and this is actually just an idea I want to copyright. So imagine you got a Lucas device, right? Okay. Or, or I'm sorry, you have a mechanical CPR device. Yes. And uh, in the middle of the plunger that goes on the chest is a device that make, that does a sternal I.O., and so that just goes down and you preload this sucker with epi and whatnot and amiodarone and lidocaine and whatever. And you just put in the estimated weight of the patient and it just goes. And then when you want to inject a med, you just press a button. What? Now, can you make it like, would it be like, you know, the, like the coffee selection touchscreen thing, you know, where you're like, ah, yeah, exactly. let's see here. Mm, I'm making it extra strong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And that's that's my idea. No, but that's that kind of goes back to the beginning of the show. Don't fucking automate us out of work, man. <laughs> well, think about it. Then you get like an autopilot ambulance so you don't even have to drive it like Elon Musk gets on that. They don't even need us. <laughs> Teach it to record a podcast and it's set. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, on that note. Anything else? 
No, so. no, like, <laughs> that's that's it. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of EMS 2020. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, if you are hearing this on its first Wednesday, wait two Wednesdays, and we'll have another one. Sometimes we release it a bit sooner than that. We'll announce it on the Facebook page. We are on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to send us an email, as we mentioned earlier, our email is ems2020podcast at gmail.com. All one word, no hyphens, no slashes, no nothing like that. So, yeah, please send us an email with stories, suggestions, things you like whatever you want uh and we will try and reply so yeah uh with that see you all next time later